Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour Digest Edition on a Friday. I'm Michael Apple. Think of it as the best of show where there's no news headlines or market report. It's just pure Friday listening pleasure based on the week's most downloaded interviews. This week, it's our sit down with ArcelorMittal SA CEO Quibus Fustad, then veteran investor Magnus Haystack, and finally, an explainer piece on state capture at Dinell. Quibus Fustad, Chief Executive of ArcelorMittal. When did you actually join the company, Quibus? Uh, the start of 2018. But prior to that, I was, uh, I was at Mittal for almost 20 years, and then uh, sort of took a different avenue for a few years. Mittal outside of South Africa or in, in South Africa? No, I worked for the old East Corps and I worked for Mittal internationally for two years. So you've seen a lot of bumps and bruises along the way. Correct. We know that the financial results that you've just released for 2021 were spectacular by any means. It's best profits ever. But these come on some pretty rough times. How much money did you guys lose in the run-up to this really good year? I think after 2010, uh, the group lost about over 20 billion in, in losses, of which 12 billion were cash losses. So the financial drain and strain was, was very severe. Was there any chance during that time that Mittal, which is a global company, would have pulled out of South Africa or indeed pulled out of the company? Uh, <coughs> Mittal, the holding company, supported the a local unit for many years. Uh, to an, I mean, at some point they had more than eight billion in uh, in funding uh, to the organisation, and as a one shareholder, they supported the company uh, to the benefit of all shareholders. So we've seen the share price rocket. The perception is you guys have been squeezing the business in South Africa, and you've squeezed every little bit of cash out of it in the in this year. Your your total balance sheet, a value of your land and properties and buildings, in other words, the factories, is 8 billion rand, and yet in the last year you made 8 billion rand. So that's good news on that side. But from what you've just said to us, you're only clawing back losses from the past. I think that's a bit of a, a, a misperception in the market that uh, the local unit has been used as a cash cow, where actually Mittal has funded the local unit for, for many, many years. Up to uh, two years ago, we had many raw materials bills outstanding from them, which we did not pay and could not pay. Um, so, uh, yes, it's a, it's, it's a wrong perception. Last year was a, a good year for us. Um, I don't think it's abnormal uh, conditions. We will not necessarily see that continuing. But the company is totally different company today than four or five years ago. You also want to reposition the company as a champion in South Africa. You are South African, it's pretty obvious, and you've worked with the group for many years. What went wrong in South Africa that a, a massive company like Isco was allowed to become less and less relevant? And, and I mean this because taking out your, from your most recent results, it was interesting to see that you produce 3 million tons of steel in this country, the total production is about 5 million from South Africa. Egypt has got 10 million. And you talk about the big, com big countries in the world, they're in the over 100 million tons. So we've really become not the powerhouse that it used to be. No, 100%. I mean, and it all starts with economic growth and consumption. 
I mean, consumption in South Africa has deteriorated and decreased well, co consistently over many years. Whereas the competitiveness, the cost base of South Africa has also changed. I mean, we used to be a low-cost producer with benefits from iron ore, benefits from electricity, and all of those things. So with a diminishing domestic market and those disadvantages, it becomes difficult to sustain and survive. If you could wave a magic wand and go back to the old ESCO, uh, which divided into two with what is now Kumba Iron Ore and ArcelorMittal, would you have kept them together, given that iron ore is by far your biggest uh, raw material input? Of course, I think if you have your integrated raw material supply, it's always beneficial. But I think if you look at our results, I mean, we have diversified our raw material supply base with smaller domestic suppliers uh, substantially that uh, our raw materials increased last year by 10% where internationally it increased by 42%. So yes, it would have been nice but also I think we've, we've, we've took a different approach a few years ago and s instead of complaining about the issue we have assisted and developed younger or smaller companies and are now almost uh, well, we're 100% source from more cost link than uh, export parity pricing. It's funny when you go back to COVID-19, and of course it was horrible uh, for big swaths of the South African economy and for big companies, but it also got people to refocus. And I, I get the feeling reading your annual report last year and reading your results that were released last week that this has also been the case with you. You've because of COVID, it almost gave you a shock, a wake-up call to, to do things differently. Alec, I think a wake-up call came earlier. I mean, we did out in 2018, we look at the, our way forward and we say, if we don't substantially change the organization, we will not be there in 19 and 20. Uh, so our sort of uh, restructuring path started in the latter part of 18. And, and we did difficult things. Uh, as I said, on the raw material side, We've changed the, 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 the way the company procure and operate. On the people side, the cost side, we've did a, a lot of things that was difficult but necessary. And I think where we are today, if I look at our competitiveness versus international uh, companies, we are there or thereabouts. We have uh, certain inherent problems. I mean, uh, rail electricity in South Africa is expensive. Uh, those things that you, you can't uh, compete. Our productivity is not where it should be. Uh, and our people are expensive. And those are issues that we still have to work on. How do you improve productivity at an organization like yours? Well, automation is one thing. You can, you can uh, I think, as your, your cost of, of salary becomes uh, too much, it becomes cheaper to automate. Um, you have to digitalize. You have to work with less people. And those type of things, I think there's, um, there's still opportunities. But, I mean, we have reduced our, our labor headcount substantially. So we're at the point where we can now tweak constantly instead of having to do radical things. But the fact that you produce 3 million tons of steel a year and you've got international competitors that produce many, many, many times that, does that not put you at an almost permanent disadvantage just from scale? From a scale perspective, yes, but I think you also have a domestic uh, supplier always have an, an added benefit or a benefit from location. I mean, we are close to our customers, we're close to the market. 
We also, uh, our 3 million tons is, you get uh, plants overseas that produce 3 million tons of only one product. We produce 200 products, which also make it a bit more uh, expensive, but also closeness to the customer. And I think one of our strategic pillars is also to be, be more connected to the customer going forward and see how we can jointly, I want to say, mine the value chain. I, I was looking at that as well, and this new customer focus of yours. Uh, these, are, these are often, many companies come out with these really nice words, but actually implementing it, actually taking a, uh, like an oil tanker and focusing it on the customer for a company like Escore, which has been the prime provider of steel in South Africa for generations. How do you get that through the organization? Well, I think Sorry, and I mean ArcelorMittal now, ISCO in the past. Yeah. No, 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 that's fine. No, no, I think, uh, I think we, we acknowledge that from a customer servicing perspective, we've, we've made mistakes. But on, on average, on general, our customers, we have a good relationship uh, with customers. I mean, I meet my customers very often. Uh, but how do, we, how do we improve that service offering? Uh, to, and it's by training people, by getting in new people, by innovating uh, and I'm comfortable that, that we have the skills base. We just have to, as you rightly say, get out of that uh, big tanker mindset and be more nimble. Are you winning on that? Oh Yes, I think so. I uh, think so. Give us an example of how. I think uh, an, an example of how is technology. We apply uh, new systems where customers' complaints can be resolved a lot quicker instead of six months six weeks and stuff like that. So you take a bit of frustration out of their lives. And, and we have many other initiatives to keep on improving on that. We do customer surveys, understand what's the problems, and work at it. When you took over as CEO, did you have any idea that it was going to be as tough as it has been? I mean, clearly COVID was, uh, was, was an unknown at that point. But that you would have had go through such a difficult time and, of course, now have had this spectacular year of turnaround? No, I must say it is harder than I thought. And I, the company also was a bit more static than I thought. I mean, I left it almost 10 years ago. And when I came back, it was almost the same. So uh, uh, getting the people to, to move, to act, was almost the most difficult uh, thing to do and as, and especially you can understand if you have a uh, 13,000 people uh, who made losses for many years um, so change that psyche uh, and we're now at the point where people actually realize but this is possible how do you incentivize them do you do you distribute this fantastic profit that you had this year do you, people see it in their paychecks uh well, we have a we have a, a decent bonus scheme. In actually, in fact, uh, in twenty twenty with the COVID, we have a reasonable performance, but we didn't make any of our targets, and we still gave a, a handsome bonus to the people, just for being there, support and stuff like that. And we will do the same uh, in in the first quarter of this year. So I guess the real story for investors now is your share price has has rocketed. Uh, you've been the best performing share on the JSC, certainly in the last year and maybe the last two years. You're stable, you, you're back into profit, you're not going to fall off the perch. But have you now reached the end of the road? 
have you got to a point where ArcelorMittal South Africa has, has now kind of got a steady state perspective and, and you could look at the performance of the past year and say that's possible into the future? I think we have to prove sustainability still. Um, so I think we have a lot of work to do. We had a, a, a very aggressive restructuring plan that we implemented up to now. We've now replaced it with a next five-year value plan and trying to create more value. Uh, and we have to deliver on that. In our type of business, if you're not cost-conscious and cost-competitive, you don't have a, a, a right uh, to exist. So we have still an, a fairly aggressive plan, um, which the, the total team bought into, and we're going to roll that out uh, in the next five years. And next five years, also very interesting things coming up. The whole decarbonization journey is a, a scary but very exciting uh, opportunity for a, a lot of people. How so? I mean, you will almost revitalize an old industry into new assets, um, where we were not the sexy industry, you will attract uh, engineers and, and stuff. People will be able to to learn. Um, no, I'm I'm very excited about that. Do you get much support from ArcelorMittal globally? I mean, <coughs> I think the, their support over the past 10, 15 years of loss making years were, were quite evident. Um, they they support the company almost in the tune of 8 billion rand directly. But from a, a, a support perspective, technical support, uh, yes, we get a lot of support. Uh, uh, effortless support and personal support from the leadership and the owner, yes, pretty much. Do you see him much, uh, Mr. Mittal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we see, obviously, we don't travel anymore, but uh, we speak often. And uh, so he takes an interest in what's going on no, in no, South no, Africa. No. Of course, he takes an interest. <laughs> How <laughs> important he's, are he's, you? He's a, he's a, <laughs> we're not that important, uh-huh. but he's a passionate steelmaker, uh, and he's got a relationship with uh, South Africa. And if you have a look at the whole steel market, uh, China producing about half of the steel uh, in the world. What's the story there? Because I guess if they switch on, uh, then the steel prices are going to get uh, under a lot of pressure. But if they decide to cut back on their steel production, and as state-owned, they can do that, uh, then steel prices around the world would be a lot firmer. Well, they have cut back. They've cut back, uh, well, they've reduced their uh, export incentives. That's one thing. And then they've cut back in production. Just explain that, export incentives from China. Were they subsidizing exports? Correct. You, you, they had a, a, a VAT rebate that supported exports. I think it's about 13%. Isn't that contrary to the World Trade Organization? I don't, I'm not sure on the specifics, but they've been uh, practicing that for many years. That mm. has, that has, uh, they've stopped that last year. And then they've got the energy shortages and they've got the emission problem which further forced them to curtail uh, production. Now, that makes a big impact. I mean, they, they are the exporter of the world. So it will change the dynamics uh, a lot. And I think going forward, for countries to produce carbon steel, uh, admit CO2, take that and export it at substandard pricing will not uh, be encouraged. Um, so I think uh, 
I think the outlook for the steel industry is a lot more positive the next 10 years than the past 10 years. It's so interesting when you have a look at it from a broader perspective because some economists will say, close ArcelorMittal, let's just import from other parts of the world where you've got scale. It's got to be cheaper. But from what I'm hearing from you now is that there is a, there's a reason to have a local or a domestic steel industry. Well, I think, you, you know, you can outsource crude steel production for a period of time, but then you will start outsource the manufacturing of many other things. Uh, Russia or China will only put steel here for a period of time, then they will put the wheelbarrow here. So you will deindustrialize uh, in, in total. Uh, but but I haven't think we done that already? Haven't we deindustrialized? I, I mean, what, what was, what was ArcelorMittal's peak output? Uh, or, no, no, uh, yeah, what was no, your no, peak before? No, I think we were about over 7 million tons. And you're down to 3? We're down to 3, yeah. Sure. Yeah, no, but I think you can reverse that. I also think from you're talking from a, a scale perspective, I mean, I know the Chinese cost curves. Uh, we're there or thereabouts. It's not that China is substantially cheaper in production than we are. Yes, the fixed cost is cheaper. That I can. The energy cost is cheaper. And if you look only at those two elements, it's about 15% cheaper than ours on a total cost basis. So we have to find ways to, to address that and, and resolve that. But, uh, but they still got to get the steel here. They still got to get And that will cost how much of the, of the percentage? If you say it's 15% cheaper to produce in China... It, it will be another 10%, I would assume. Right. So it's, it comes very much Correct. over But much if I look at, I mean, we are in the range of the, the China, I mean, I've looked uh, recently at, I think, 36 of their of the cost curve. It gets published. There's an international uh, website on that, and uh, we're not uncompetitive. Now, your customers in South Africa, are you one of the companies that they love to hate? Over many years, there have been people, first of all, going to the Competition Commission, and other people complaining, as they have done on BizNews uh, in our columns, saying, you guys went to the government, you got duty protection. Uh, reading in your annual report, that expired, but you need to explain that to me as well. But you're still charging much more than you should be charging. What's your counter-argument to that? I mean, our price is derived from an international price. So firstly, our, our price is actually regulated. So there's an international formula, dollars converted to, uh, to, uh, by the exchange rate, and that's the cap. And then you also have an import uh, parity. I mean, so I've got two caps to my price. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, international prices increased last year substantially more than prices domestically. So uh, that's not, I mean, you always have, uh, and when you talk about duties, it's not for AMSA. The duties are there for the industry. I mean, last year, I think there was, uh, most probably for, on the local sales side, we sold just over 2 million tons. Our competitors sold 1.1 million tons. 1.3 was imported. They also get uh, a protection. Um, so it's not that uh, uh, it's a freebie. And the, the, the rules around duties is WTO standards. And it's not only South Africa. Steel's been dutied all over the world. Even China's got duties on South Africa. Russia's got duty on South Africa steel. Turkey's got duties on India. So those four exporting countries all have duties on us exporting steel to them. So it's a bit of an education process that people uh, uh, need, to, need to do. 
And duty is not a steel thing. I mean, if you import a car, there's duties. If you import cigarettes, whatever, um, duties got charged on, on, on many products. Um, and there's good reason for. What are those reasons? Uh, to create fairness. As I said to you earlier, you, you cannot have ca- uh, countries where energy is subsidized or labor is subsidized or the Chinese don't factor in what's finance cost. Uh, and they all that, that benefits. And they export the residual part and also incentivize it. That's so complex, isn't it? And it's so easy to be simplistic about these things. But I think that the real question for South Africans generally is that we've seen this industrial base of ours being hollowed out. And here you've got a company that's now back in profit and is saying, we want to be the champion of the manufacturing sector for South Africa. How do you do that in an environment where it doesn't appear as though there's a heck of a lot that's supporting you. Just look at electricity prices as a, as a starting point. No, I, I do think, but just coming back to one point, when you talk to our customers, I mean, our customers are generally satisfied with our service and our quality. Our quality is, I mean, you always have one or two uh, potential complaints, but I don't know, maybe they're competitors, not customers. So uh, we've got over 1.3 million tons of imports into the country. So how do we work with our customers to displace that firstly? Um, we've got capacity potential. I mean, we can restart a Sultana. We can increase our current production base, most probably by almost a million tons. So there's capacity that can be made available. Um, how do we work with customers to displace that? Once you start displacing that, then you start industrializing on a small scale. But ultimately, um, I think there's a, a lot of opportunity. But we need baseline economic growth uh, to ignite these things. I, I think the tools are there, the people are there, the assets are there. Um, we just need the government to unleash that. But we've seen massive gearing in your company, uh, in, in that your Turnover last year went up about 15 billion, and the bottom line turnaround was 9 billion. So yeah. it dropped straight, almost straight to the bottom line. If you were to see South Africa growing again, the economy growing, not at 3%, but perhaps 5 and 6 and, and, and more, is that what you're looking for? Is that where the real turnaround will become apparent? Correct. If you have growth of, say, 1.8%, they're around about 1.5 to 1.8%, your steel consumption stays static. So once you get to 3%, it's actually a hockey stick. It gets accelerated substantially. So if we can get to the 3 to 5%, I mean, that will be many very beneficial for the steel industry, not for us. Are you seeing any signs of that happening? I mean, I think... Uh, um, you know, you have to you have to remain positive. I mean, the the energy renewable energy that will already start um, with a, I think a, a fairly long term constant supply of quality uh, demand. Um, I think there's some water dam projects that is imminent. So uh, I think once uh, once those things happen, I think the I won't say privatization, but sort of the allowing uh, private sector involvement in ports and rail will also start to uh, have a positive impact. So the words are good. The SONA, uh, State of the Nation, was saying all of these things after many years, perhaps appreciating 
where the country has been going wrong and saying the good things. But but you're at the rock face. You 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 feel whether demand is going up or not. And are you seeing yet from industry that they're starting to believe the story, this turnaround story for the country? I I don't I don't necessarily think so. I think people are very uh, skeptical, but South Africans are also very positive people. I mean, I can tell you the people in our industry look at opportunities um, to participate and to support growth. Um, so I think uh, I'm I'm maybe naively so, but I am still positive because we don't have much other choices. Uh, <laughs> some of these things would would be uh, would start uh, materializing. Yeah, there's no there's no point in being negative if you're living in a country like Correct. ours. But it, it, if you look outside of the borders of South Africa and you do service other parts of the African continent, what's the feedback from there? Well, I think if you look at the at the steel demand potential in sub-Saharan Africa, it's, it's also massive. So there is a big uh, potential to the extent that the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement make it easier to do that and start, I don't want to say protecting, but look at uh, two-way trade instead of trading with China or Russia or whatever. I think there's a lot of opportunities there, not necessarily for us directly, but for our customers who have that indirect growth. So those are all things that's on the card that's being discussed in, in, in various areas, but all government uh, sort of sponsored or stuff, and, and the government wheels are, are slow. But one would assume that uh, eventually these 50% of these cards can actually stack up. So if, if I look at it from a long-term perspective, we were to take a 10-year view on Oslo Middle South Africa. You've, you've been through the worst. You, you're not going bankrupt. You've, you've now started moving back into profit. You've refocused, restructured the business, and you've got ideas and plans to, to make that even better. You have on your doorstep a free trade agreement with the rest of the continent, which has now been enacted. And you also have a government which is talking the right talk, even though it might take a long time, as you've mentioned, for that to come through. So if you take that 10-year view, I guess you would see things being a lot more positive uh, in a decade's time than they are today? I think there's, there's two things. I, I, as I said, I think the international steel market would be more positive the next 10 years than the previous 10. And then in South Africa, uh, I do think that the next 10 years can only be better. Um, and if you stack up all of those things, uh, I do think a much more positive outlook for for us as a company, but as an industry, but I think generally. So what is it going to take for OsloMittal to start reinvesting again? As I mentioned earlier, you've got 8 billion rand in assets, in, in plant and, and property and equipment, and you've already achieved 8 billion rand in profit. You've got Saldana, a, a steel works waiting to be reopened, so I guess you don't really need to start building any more steel factories. But what's it going to take for you to to really for your global parent to really pump money in in fixed investment here? Well, I think we we have to generate the the, the cash that that we want to invest. I think that's the important thing. I think we deleverage the balance sheet, 
and will allow us to 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 leverage again for the appropriate assets. I mean, our plans is for for this year. You know, our cap, capex is going to be substantially more than doubled than last year. It was about what was it last? So it's not year, a billion right? rand. About a billion. So yeah. you're doubling it up. Yeah, more than doubling it up. In in where? How would you spend that? <coughs> well, we spend. Uh, we, we have some environmental projects that we are doing. We're doing some quality projects, and we're doing some general maintenance uh, and the restoration. Uh, so uh, we are investing, but the next phase of investing is to invest in renewable energy uh, as part of the decarbonization journey. So and and the cost of electricity; those investments become commercially very easy to justify. Magnus is with us in the virtual studio here at Biz News after a story last week about you losing money. I got 50,000 people already have read it and I think there's a there maybe there's a bit of schadenfreude in that to say well Magnus has been getting it so right with the offshore stuff that even he can lose money once in a while. Indeed, I I'd, I'd like to see somebody who's been in financial markets as long as I and you and David Shapiro and, and not have made mistakes. We all make mistakes. And and this one was a particularly bad one in the sense that I did everything wrong as far as this investment was concerned. I was swayed by emotion. I was swayed by the bull market that was punted by everyone. I'm talking about the big property bull market, the newspapers, the media, the radios. The seminars were all about building a property empire. I fell for it and, and, and I was persuaded by a family member. You know, we're going to make so much money. We buy property, we build a house and sell it or rent it. And of course, it was right at the top. And, and thousands of other South Africans are still paying the price for that. And I, I see it daily. People say, I can't sell my property. And it's quite true. It took me 13 years to sell that property, even though I'd put it on the market about eight years ago. There was just no buyers. And the pro- the thing is with property, especially a stand that does not produce an income, you are liable for the rates and taxes, the levies, and it can affect your credit record. And it's just a lesson to the younger investors. Whenever there's a little upturn in the property market, you have these people who go around and say, well, property is the way to make money and build an empire. And I'm saying, forget about it. It's not especially not in South Africa and with the macroeconomic environment that we have here. But it is a lesson to people. Don't be swayed by emotions and don't be swayed by pressure groups and fear of missing out. All the rules I broke and I paid the price. Well, I I love the fact that you trumpet your failures, but you have also done incredibly well out of property. Where did you not make those mistakes? You know, in the in the strangely enough, and you have to go back in time, after the Soweto riots, we're going back forty five years ago, from nineteen seventy seven to nineteen eighty, we had a commodity boom as well, and the economy was growing at six percent, and in that period, it was easy to make money, and then just after the ninety four elections, the property market was incredibly strong up to about two thousand and eight. The rules have changed over time. And a lot of people did make a great deal of money, myself, including buying in places like Danefern when I was told, you know, it's so far in the felt. So, yes, we made some nice, good money. But then 2008, the rules changed as far as property. Property does very well when, A, the economy is growing very, very rapidly. Two, when money is freely available and the banks 
are eager to, to grow their mortgage books, which they were doing 2002 to 2008. And thirdly, money was cheap. That is when the property market does extremely well. That's why the United States, United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand are having enormous bull markets. If you look at the interest rates in those countries, it's 1% or 2%. People are refinancing mortgages at below 1% in the United Kingdom. So money is so cheap, you just buy a second or a third property and you build an empire. South Africa's interest rates have been way too high to try and do that trick. You know, with, with bond rates between 8 and 10%, you, you just, you just, uh, you just don't, don't stand a chance as far as interest rates are concerned. So things changed in 2008, and if circumstances were to change to to that kind of a situation, then presumably you'd look at property again. But for the moment, is there any property development in South Africa that you would be uh, maybe attracted to looking at as an outlier? You know, there are certain areas, you know, but you're not going to make a mountain of money. It's not an easy way to make money. Yes, the Western Cape, Franschuk, Paul, Waldevi, maybe uh, wilderness area. There's a demand for property there, but you're still not going to make a lot of money. You're, you've got two things against you. One is the high cost of money in South Africa. And secondly, the second one is the dramatic increase in rates and taxes over the last 10 to 15 years. And it's not only residential property that is suffering from this. The, the commercial property guys are, are suffering even more. They are saying it's just physically possible to make the kind of returns that they used to with interest rates at, at, at these levels and, more importantly, uh, administered prices, as they call it, just rocketing through the roof. So administered prices, which is, in effect, a, a, an additional tax on, on, on property owners, is just killing all the growth. And, and we're all paying the price. And it's, it's unreported. I mean, you're about one of the few media outlets who writes about it but I look at balance sheets of people all day long. I, I checked some prices myself over the weekend. I looked at Pekinwood, for instance, and, and, and the areas around the dam. The prices there today, Alec, are the same as they were eight, maybe even 10 years ago. So people have been banking on that capital appreciation uh, in preparation for their retirement are finding that that is actually such a drag on the capital that it is destroying many, many retirement dreams. I can buy the same house I sold in Pekinwood 10 years ago for the same price. So someone who bought it from me has had no capital appreciation in 10 years. And, uh, you know, that, that you can multiply all around the country. The top end of the property market has virtually come to a standstill. Price movements are, are very, very far below the inflation rate if you take it over a 10, 12-year period. So it has affected a lot of people. And, as, as, and to answer your question, I would be very, very selective. You're looking for a well-run uh, uh, province, first of all. And secondly, you're looking for a well-run municipality. And that kind of limits you to places like uh, uh, Paul, Stellenbosch, Franschuk, uh, and maybe George Wilderness and Mossel Bay. And that's where you'll find where the guys are still... There's still an active property market, but many, many small towns, medium towns in the country. You come from the KwaZulu Natal countryside, Alec. I mean, those towns just don't have a conventional property market anymore. And if they do, at prices that you could hardly believe are 
uh, if you stood back 10 or 15 years ago. Well, it's so interesting you mentioned that because I have uh, good friends in Hilton and Howick, which of course is now the DA run uh, municipal, the only DA run municipality in KZN, um, with uh, young Chris Tap- uh, Pappas who's taken over there. And suddenly the prices have gone yes. very, very strong in that area. But what about uh, to, in the north coast of KZN? We had some BT. Uh, which did pretty well, and now there's a, there's a big development there at Blairsdale, uh, which I guess is uh, it's it's been around for a long time, but it seems to be getting new life now. Are there pockets uh, like that, Zimbali? Yeah. Where there's yeah. you know there's lots of property on the on the market at, in Zimbali. Are there pockets that are worth uh, looking at if you're a long term investor? Yeah, look, Zimbali is fantastic. Blairsdale uh, is I've been on the sites. You know, it has had some legal problems and, and and so on, and that's happening now. And I think that will be a good development over time, but it will not still not be the, the shortcut to riches that that you know a generation or two were, were told. You know, property is your way to make money in South Africa. The macroeconomic environment is against us. The political environment is against us. But yeah, north, north northern Kozulu Natal, Mshlanga up to Belito, there are some wonderful developments. But it is still, um, you know, it's not a shortcut to riches that it used to be. Uh, and it's definitely not if we compare ourselves with other peer countries, like I mentioned earlier. They are having tremendous uh, property booms. And, and there are uh, political factors that mitigate against that, in, in, in my experience also. Too many young professionals have left the country 10, 20 years ago. And even today, they are or would have been the buyers of the properties that you were selling now. They're simply not in the country. They're all in other parts of the world. They're buying in New Zealand. So you put all those things into a pot. Yes, buy property uh, to live in. It's a home. You raise your kids. But don't think that's going to make your money in the current circumstances. It has to be in the stock market either in SA or, or preferably still, in my view, offshore. Now, you sent me some numbers this morning, which are absolutely fascinating. From the bottom of the market in April 2020, that's just after the COVID shock hit, the top 40 shares, uh, well, the, the, the top 10 of the top 40 shares have shown incredible growth. Leading the, the group is Sassel, which at one point, I recall it well, uh, people were talking about it going bankrupt. I, I did the side our research department, uh, you know, play around with this numbers. I've, I, I kind of suspected we we're going to get this result. So I asked my techies to have a look at the top 10 shares in the top 40, which gives you a good uh, reflection of what happened in our market since the bottom in March 2020. And you'll recall, go back March 2020, Alec, it was the end of the world. The world is coming to a standstill. COVID has changed everything, and boom, suddenly something changed. Not even the smartest experts in the world could have foreseen what happened since then. I mean, we're talking about suddenly there's a commodity boom. And from that low, I mean, Sussel price went eight, up 823%, followed by MTN and, and, and platinum shares, Genco. So, I mean, Sussel was by far the outstanding share to have. Uh, been in uh, as a consequence of of oil going up from you about eighteen months ago, oil was trading at below zero. I mean, there, there was a situation in the market that 
you, you were paying the oil producers to hold your oil or whatever. They were paying the, the market to take the oil that was so cheap and something just happened and people are still working it out. So, yes, eight of those top 10 shares of commodity shares. And as I said to you in my heading, and I've mentioned this before, South Africa just got very, very lucky, not only in the stock market, also from a revenue perspective. All those companies or most of those companies uh, paying record, record profits, paying taxes, and suddenly the ANC government or the government is flush with cash. Now, therein lies the danger that this will be seen as a permanent and sustainable situation, that these revenue levels will be sustained. And investors must be very, very careful. And I think Treasury also must be very careful. And they've warned about that. Professor Michael Sachs, who used to be at Treasury, has warned and said, this is commodity cycles are cyclical and uh, we can have a downturn at any time. And you can't bank on commodities being and staying as high as it is, and hence tax revenues. But the danger is now that the government is introducing a big basic income grant. We don't know at what level, but we do know one thing. Once introduced, it will not be taken away, and it will probably increase over time. And therein lies the danger for the macroeconomists. They'll be looking at you know, GDP to taxes and those kind of ratios. Which, again, yes, it's fantastic when, when, when commodities are running, there's money. Uh, we also have an election coming up in two years or 18 months from now. The danger is that the commodity cycle starts turning down, but our expenditure or budgeted expenditure stays at elevated levels, and then we will pay the price once again. Where do you stand on the whole inflation story? Uh, clearly, if you'd been invested in Impala Platinum, Glencore, Northern, Sabanya, Anglo-American Platinum, uh, you would have made a huge return between March 2020 and today. But those stocks generally, or commodity stocks generally, do well in an inflationary environment because it, they can pass on those prices. And there is definitely a view that inflation is back and it's going to stay. Have you looked at that in any detail? I look at it every day and I ask myself, what the heck is happening? You know, you've got now you have a situation where South African inflation rate is lower than the United States. It hasn't happened in 42 years. And what impact will it have on the Rand dollar exchange rate? What impact will it have on the offshore onshore debate? And secondly, what is the United States government or the Treasury going to do about this? Now, that is the biggest issue in the markets right now. How uh, durable is or will, will, will U.S. inflation likely turn out to be? And what response will you expect from the United States Federal Reserve? They still seem to stick to the storyline that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's only for a short while transitory. The rest of the market is not buying that story. And they say that the market will be affected by increased interest rates in the United States, maybe five times, seven times, who knows? We don't know. But the market is taking fright as to what higher interest rates can do to not only financial markets, but also currency markets. So as I said in an earlier podcast, the easy money has been made. It has been very, very easy to make a lot of money uh, in global markets, especially in the United States. It's been a wonderful ride for 12, 13 years. 
Now the situation has changed. Now one has to look at your assumptions and be able to change your mindset if the facts change. And sometimes people just can't change their facts or their mindset. But we are in in uncharted water in many respects, Alec, and mistakes are going to be made. You know, is it time for gold? I had a long discussion with an investor this morning. He just wanted to buy gold, gold, gold. Gold has done nothing for two years, three years. But it might be the time for gold and gold shares. But uh, uh, I think you need a very diversified portfolio. You need Japan in there. You need a bit of China. You need commodity stocks in there. And maybe, and, and for, for so far, you know, the, the Pitfillion's uh, investment style, the investment value is doing very well. Is this durable? Those are the kind of questions that we faced with on an on an, on, a, on a daily basis, but since the crack in the market, second of January, the value style has outperformed the growth style, and that's something that we need to look at. But that's that's a month, <laughs> I suppose. Well, that's 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 it. Might be early days. It might be a short term blip. You know, that's why you know it's not that easy anymore to make the kind of money that we did make for our investors. So we just all have to work a little bit harder. And try to stick to the facts, not emotions, and put your emotions aside. Hello, I'm Michael Apple. I'd like to take you along on this audio journey into the second state capture report, this time dealing with Danelle. Just as background, between 2005 and 2010, Danelle was a loss-making enterprise. But from 2011 to 2015, the state-owned entity turns things around and was making a profit every year. By 2015, Danelle's financial position had improved so much it was actually being praised in Parliament and in the media. The board was providing oversight and effective direction, and Danelle even received a clean and unqualified audit from the Auditor General that year. Then, the Guptas got involved. Or more, they'd been trying to get involved several years before that. So our starting point of the Guptas' involvement is actually 2012, in January of that year, Riaz Saluji is appointed as the new group chief executive at Danel. Saluji isn't in that role long when someone comes knocking. He gets approached by a man called Salim Essa, a well-known Gupta lieutenant, who invites Saluji to a meeting. He's told this invitation comes from the very top. Saluji ignores Essa for a while, but finally relents and meets him at a coffee shop. Essa then drives him from the coffee shop to what Brian Malefa would call the Saxon World Shabin, the palatial corruption HQ the Guptas would insist people come to see them at. People were summoned more than invited. At this first meeting at the Guptas compound is Public Enterprises Minister at the time, Malusi Gigaba, Tony and Atul Gupta. It's here where Gigaba tells Saluji the Guptas are his friends and he hopes that they can all work together. At a second meeting at the Gupta's home, Saluji meets Dudizane Zuma, the son of the then head of state, and one of Ace Mahushule's sons. Mahushule was the premier of the Free State at the time. Salim Esa himself, of course, is there and tells Saluji that the Guptas supported his appointment as GCEO at Danel and that they, the Guptas, had the full support of, quote, the old man and of number one. Obviously a term that refers to Jacob Zuma. It's here where Essa tells him that the Guptas want to do business with Danel. Saluji's response, according to the report, is he tells them they'll have to go through the proper business channels. 
from my experience of covering state capture over the years, this is quite a career-limiting move by Saluji, as you'll see later on. In the subsequent meetings with the Guptas in 2012, Tony Gupta tells Saluji he's not cooperating with them and that he didn't want to have to elevate this kind of behavior. That's a veiled threat to either work with them or they'd complain to Jacob Zuma. Tony Gupta would also moan to Saluji that Danelle wasn't supporting their media enterprise, the New Age newspaper, sufficiently through advertising or buying subscriptions. Other SOEs were pouring millions into their newspaper venture. Remember the testimony of former cabinet spokesperson Temba Moseko that the Guptas wanted 600 million in government advertising diverted just to their newspaper? When Maseko refused, he was out of a job not long after. So Saluji clearly knows what's at stake here. But he maintains that proper processes had to be followed if the Guptas wanted to do business with Danel. The Guptas needed to get into the industry, so they turned their gaze on a well-known, well-run, well-respected company in the industry called VR Laser. It was a functioning company that was used as a vehicle through which the Guptas would achieve their capture of Danel. Now, regarding all these meetings, the report says that, quote, there is no doubt that the Guptas brought Gigaba to these meetings to show Saluji that Gigaba was a mere tool in their hands, a dupe who would do their bidding and from whom Saluji could expect no protection, close quote. The same way Dudizane was used at meetings. He'd sit there silently but be an ever-present reminder that anyone's non-cooperation would see them being reported to daddy. The Guptas even introduced Saluji to one Daniel Mancha, a man who'd be appointed as the Danell board chairperson in 2015. One thing about Mancha though, he was a former attorney of record for former President Jacob Zuma. He'd actually been struck off the role of attorneys in about 2007 for alleged dodgy dealings involving his trust account and clients' money being unaccounted for. They introduced Saluji to Mancha before his appointment to that very powerful position had even been made public. They clearly knew something nobody else did. This is, of course, a hallmark or a pattern that follows where the Guptas always knew in advance when changes would be made to cabinet, begging the question who was actually calling the shots, Zuma at the Union Buildings or the Guptas from Saxonwald through Zuma at the Union Buildings. In May 2014, Malusi Gigaba is replaced as Public Enterprises Minister by Lynn Brown. Saluji's relationship with Brown was good. Why wouldn't it be? In 2015, Danell's order book was singing to the tune of 35 billion rand, with 200 million rand in net profit that year. In her address to Danell's AGM in late July 2015, she praised Saluji, even suggesting he be seconded to ESCOM to go help them out there. Zondo's report makes the point that Brown's comments are ironic, as a mere two months later, Saluji and two other officials are suspended by the new Danell board under very strange circumstances. They're never given a disciplinary hearing in nine months of suspension, they're offered payouts if they just leave. They opted to stay and try and clear their names of these dubious allegations of fraud and malfeasance. 
but ultimately they were pushed out of Denal, with Saluji receiving a 2.6 million rand settlement agreement. The chief financial officer received a payout of 8.4 million rand to go, and the company's secretary, the third person suspended, was given a 1.6 million rand payout to just go away. One of Lynn Brown's first big moves at Denel was to replace the entire board in September 2015. All except for one person, actually, Johannes Motseki. He's a former treasurer of the Mkontowe Sizwe Military Veterans Association, the MKMVA, and he's a Gupta business partner from 2010 already in a uranium mining venture called Shiva Uranium. That's right. The Guptas were actually mining uranium. It makes you think twice about why Zuma's government pushed so hard to get us involved in a trillion rand nuclear deal with Russia, doesn't it? Who would have benefited the most from a deal like that? A family that just happened to be mining uranium, I wager. So the new board is said to have no skills or expertise. The previous board had accountants, a person with anti-corruption expertise, academics in the fields of economic and management sciences, technology, lawyers. All of these people were cut, except for the one person who had existing business ties with the Guptas. Brown would also do something extraordinary. She announced the names of the new Audit and Risk Committee, a committee normally chosen by the board itself and not the minister. The report here notes that Brown also explicitly excluded appointing deputy directors general or DDGs from the board. Brown says it was because DDGs were too close to decision makers within SOEs and ironically she was acting to stop any corrupt activity. But Zondo's report finds that this excuse is ludicrous. Quote, she excluded them, the DDGs, because they could raise questions about the candidates that the Guptas wanted to be appointed. This is how keen she was to please the Guptas. Close quote. Brown had done this before, actually. She had once called former ESCOM board chair Zola Tsotsi to the Guptas' compound to instruct him on which people to place on one of the committees on the ESCOM board. The list that Tsotsi was given carried the exact same names he'd earlier received from Salim Essa. The report notes that Tsotsi appears to have had some relationship with the Guptas, but when that soured, he was replaced by Dr. Benengubane, yet another person with links to the Guptas. Brown's composition of the 2015 board at Donnell would first go before the deployment committee of the ANC. The report makes the observation that, quote, the deployment committee of the ANC approved a board which consisted of a majority of members who were connected to the Guptas. Donnell's board chairperson, the disgraced attorney Daniel Muncher, was asked by the state capture inquiry why the Guptas paid for his trips to India and Dubai in October 2015. Muncher gave no logical explanation, and the report finds that, quote, the conclusion is irresistible. The overseas travel was quid pro quo for Mancha's services in effecting the capture of Donnell. As for Mr. Mancha, the report says he was not duped into acting as he did. He was a witting agent of state capture. Now back to VR Laser and Donnell for a second. The report highlights that the Guptas were never prepared to compete for Donnell's business. Not fairly, anyway. 
So they use their purchase of VR laser as a means to get in the door after loading the board with their henchmen. The Gupta's plans went beyond just scoring unlawful tenders from Donnell. On 9 December 2015, National Treasury officials meet with Donnell executives to discuss a recent announcement the SOE was entering into a joint venture with VR Laser Asia. The sole shareholder in that company is, surprise, surprise, Salim Essa. It was a shell company registered in Hong Kong with zero proven track record, but was set to make billions if the JV was approved. A joint venture of this nature, looking to exploit markets in Asia and the Pacific, needed treasury and public works approval. It had neither. Seemingly a stumbling block to not only this deal, but also the nuclear deal, was Finance Minister Nklantlanene. That very day, the 9th of December 2015, he's fired by Zuma and replaced by weekend special Des van Royen. Just as an aside, Van Royen is looking to challenge the state capture inquiry report, by the way. Van Royen is in office for only four days, in which time Donnell sought to rush that joint venture approval process through. But luckily, Van Royen was removed faster than the creaky wheels within government could turn. As for Public Enterprises Minister Lynn Brown, Brown testified before the state capture inquiry that she did not know nor had she ever spoken to Salim Essa before. But pesky cell phone records found she actually had eight telephone conversations with him. Another 12 calls were actually put through to Brown's number by Essa, but she didn't pick up. All the calls happened between the periods where new, rather Gupta-compliant boards were being installed at ESCOM and Donnell. The report states, quote, Brown was a witting participant in the Gupta scheme to capture Donnell and Eskom. In its recommendations, the report states that it cannot be left to politicians, or the ANC's deployment committee in other words, to choose who is placed on boards of SOEs, or who becomes chief executive or chief financial officer at state-owned entities. The report says law enforcement agencies should conduct further investigations into the decisions of that 2015 Denal board, especially in relation to the unlawful suspension of those three executives and their subsequent payouts. As for Mancha, the Companies Act makes provision for someone to be declared a delinquent director, and it urges government to bring such action against Mancha and the board members. Interestingly, abuse of power is not a criminal offence, but Zondo's report also asks that government consider making it a statutory offence for any person vested with public power to abuse it. So this, in essence, is the recipe for how you capture an SOE. You find a state-owned entity that has just received a clean audit that is profitable, and you get rid of the board. You have a pliable minister in place to strong-arm executives who put up a fight. You suspend those executives. You give them millions in payouts, but you make them go away. You buy a company, VR Laser in this case, that was already doing work for Donnell, and you enter into several exclusive contracts with the SOE. Those tenders are rigged in your favor, completely unlawful, but it'll see millions transferred out of a functioning SOE into the hands of the Guptas and their associates. That money is siphoned out of South Africa, designated for shell companies in Dubai and Hong Kong. Or you use the taxpayers' money from these giant payouts 
to purchase other entities you then force the state to do business with. Rinse and repeat. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.